few weeks before going completely insane, and even in seeming premonition of that occurrence, Friedrich Nietzsche completed the final revisions to what would be his last original book, Ecce Homa, a brilliant retrospective of his life and work, completed in 1888 but not published for another ten years. He signed it, Dionysus versus the Crucified, thus affirming the centrality of the Dionysian to his life's work, a notion that appeared in his first book and which would recur in some form in everything he ever wrote. Hail and welcome to A Satanist Reads the Bible, exploring the Bible, Christianity, and other religions and their sacred texts through the lens of Satanism in order to reinvent religion for myself. Friedrich Nietzsche has been one of the most significant influences on my life as a Satanist and in my work as a philosopher and critic of religion. The Gay Science in particular is one of my favorite books, and I'll be talking about that more in a second. I want to address something first that I think always needs to be addressed first when talking about Nietzsche, which is his misogyny. Nietzsche had some very bad experiences with women in his life and ended up just writing women off completely, which is a stupid thing to do. The point is, literally everything that Nietzsche says about women should be completely ignored by everyone. But with that out of the way, I'm looking forward to reading what I think is some of the best work I've ever done. I've covered a huge swath of Nietzsche's literary corpus, and I've learned a great deal, and that's always the best sign for me that I've done my job well. That's coming up in just a few minutes. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode, and I'm letting you know now that you'll be seeing more of this kind of thing in your inbox every single week if you like, subscribe, whatever's appropriate to the platform you're listening to this on. If you want to be a part of making this thing even better, stop by a satanistreadsthebible.com where I publish everything I read on the show and where you can find links to my Patreon page where you can sign up and get even more awesome content. This essay in particular has a lot of affiliate links where you can buy Nietzsche's books on Amazon, and the cool thing about Nietzsche is that he was highly prolific, but most of his best work is available in two collections, plus the complete gay science. And please talk to people about the awesome Weird Religion podcast you found. Now, news and religion. Apparently the archives of the Vatican, the Vatican Apostolic Library, is being scanned and is available, at least in part, online. According to an article by Daniel Esparza from August 17th published on Aletheia, there are over a million books in this archive and a great many of them are available on a website called Digivatlib, which is literally the least interesting name anyone could think of for such a cool thing. I'm really excited about this. I'm just getting started on Latin, the language many of these books appear to have been written in, but even just getting a look inside centuries-old handwritten books is a fantastic opportunity. I wish there was more information on the documents available on the site that might provide context, but it's still really interesting just as it is. Music this week is Musmahu, whose debut album came out early this year on the consistently fantastic label Iron Bonehead. It's incantation-style death metal, the really cavernous approach that's become especially popular in the last few years with bands like Frenolith and Dead Congregation, but this is not at all a typical release in that style, even given its exceptional quality. It's very dank, but also surprisingly melodic, and there's some killer work on the drums that I really love on this one. Iron Bonehead doesn't stream, so far as I know, but it's worth dropping a few bucks for this one on Bandcamp. And since Nietzsche is the topic of discussion today, I'll take this opportunity to talk about one of my favorite books, and one that is not going to see much other discussion in this episode, The Gay Science. Published in 1882, The Gay Science is the final work of Nietzsche's middle aphoristic period. It includes some of his poems and songs and 383 usually very short sections on various subjects. 
Nietzsche called it the most personal of all his books, and what amazes me every time I pick it up is how this person, a near invalid throughout most of his life due to relentless health problems, was able to find within himself such vital joyousness. And now, Nietzsche and the Dionysian. Nietzsche's first book, The Birth of Tragedy, is an immature work from the man who would become one of history's greatest writers and philosophers, and, though it has several remarkable redeeming qualities, is not well regarded in general, not even by Nietzsche himself in his later years. The book, published originally in 1872, three years after Nietzsche was made a professor of classical philology at the University of Basel at the remarkable age of 24, was reissued in 1886 with a preface that Nietzsche titled, Attempt at a Self-Criticism. He criticizes the book further in Ecce Homo, but affirms this notion of the Dionysian as being one of its redeeming qualities. Dionysus is an ancient Greek god associated with wine, drunkenness, fertility, and the theater, who was adopted by Nietzsche as, a, as symbolic of certain cultural and artistic trends within ancient Greek culture. This symbolism took on broader meaning over the course of Nietzsche's writings, but let us begin by examining how it appeared in The Birth of Tragedy. Ancient Greek tragedy was one of Nietzsche's great loves, and the question that he was seeking to answer in The Birth of Tragedy was, what was it that made it so great? By way of an answer, Nietzsche examined two opposing trends in ancient Greek culture and art, the Apollinian and the Dionysian. Apollo being the god of rationality and logic, the Apollinian is the logical and rational, the embodiment of the Principium Individuationis the principle of individuation, a term Nietzsche borrowed from his once mentor Schopenhauer, which concerns the discernment and identification of things as being distinct. As to the Dionysian, quoting here, Under the charm of the Dionysian, not only is the union between man and man reaffirmed, but nature, which has become alienated, hostile, or subjugated, celebrates once more her reconciliation with her lost son, man. Freely, earth proffers her gifts, and peacefully the beasts of prey of the rocks and desert approach. The chariot of Dionysus is covered with flowers and garlands. Panthers and tigers walk under its yoke. Transform Beethoven's hymn to joy into a painting. Let your imagination conceive the multitudes bowing to the dust, awestruck. Then you will approach the Dionysian. Uh, that's The Birth of Tragedy, Section 1, and all translations are by Kaufman, unless otherwise noted. On its own, this passage is quite stirring. Taken in context, it's unnecessarily florid and reveals Nietzsche's weaknesses as a writer in his early years. But it does give us a good sense of the subject matter. If in the Apollinian everything is distinguished and individuated through rationality, then in the Dionysian everything comes together in an indistinguishable intoxicated chaos. Nietzsche was not advocating for one or the other. Rather, he said, it was the tension between the two that made Greek tragedy great. Quoting again, Let us pause here a moment to recall to our minds our previously described impression of the discordant and incommensurable elements of the nature of a Schillian tragedy. Let us recall our surprise at the chorus and the tragic hero of that tragedy, neither of which we could reconcile with our own customs any more than with tradition. Till we rediscovered this duality itself as the origin and essence of Greek tragedy, as the expression of two interwoven artistic impulses, the Apollinian and the Dionysian. Birth of Tragedy, Section 12. It was in Euripides and in his inclusion in his plays of a Socratic rationalist dialectic that tragedy started to go wrong for Nietzsche. This third principle, the Socratic, shattered the fragile balance between the Apollinian and the Dionysian. 
This is the new opposition, Nietzsche says, the Dionysian and the Socratic, and the art of Greek tragedy was wrecked on this. From Birth of Tragedy, section 12. And returning to Ecce Homo, Socrates is recognized in the Birth of Tragedy for the first time as an instrument of Greek disintegration, as a typical decadent. Rationality against instinct. Rationality at any price as a dangerous force that undermines life. That's from the, that book section on the birth of tragedy, section one. Here we begin to see the ideas into which Nietzsche's initial conception of the Apollinean would transform. Nietzsche is not opposed to rationality in general, but rather only when it interferes with one's capacity to be a human, and that is certainly the case with Socrates. Socrates' suicide was rationality at its most anti-human. He accepted the judgment of the court and ended his life when he could easily have fled because he knew that to do otherwise would be to refute rationality itself, of which the court was, in Socrates' view, the public instrument. Nietzsche's views towards Socrates were complex, and Nietzsche's faithful translator Walter Kaufman even believes that there were many qualities of Socrates that Nietzsche wished to emulate. Nietzsche is no more against or for Socrates than he is against or for Apollo or Dionysus, Kaufman says in his introduction to The Birth of Tragedy. His whole way of thinking is far removed from such crudities. Shortly after, he mentions Nietzsche's call for an artistic Socrates and says, the artistic Socrates is Nietzsche himself. Nietzsche wrote more about his views on Socrates in another one of his books from 1888, which also bears the greatest title that has ever been given to a work of philosophy, Twilight of the Idols, or How One Philosophizes with a Hammer. Nietzsche published sporadically over the next decade, primarily releasing works in an aphoristic style that would culminate in The Gay Science, published in 1882. In this book, we begin to get a sense of how the Dionysian was transforming for Nietzsche and what it was transforming into. I would argue that the entire book revolves around this new understanding of the Dionysian, which Nietzsche references directly in section 370. Quoting, The desire for destruction, change, and becoming can be an expression of an overflowing energy that is pregnant with the future. My term for this, as is known, Dionysian but it can also be the hatred of the ill-constituted, disinherited, and underprivileged who destroy, must destroy, because what exists, indeed all existence, all beings, outrages and provokes them. 1883 and 1886 would see Nietzsche publish two of his most famous works, Beyond Good and Evil and On the Genealogy of Morals, which made little reference to the Dionysian, but which nevertheless created the framework for that to which Nietzsche's new understanding of the Dionysian would be opposed, the Christian. On the genealogy of morals presented the following thesis, to which I am giving far too little space. The Jewish people, during their periods of enslavement, invented what we now know as Judeo-Christian morality as a way of reckoning with their miserable lot in life as slaves of other civilizations. The ancient Hebrews invented evil, Nietzsche said, as representing the cruel tyranny of their masters, and they invented good, Nietzsche said, to represent themselves as being justified and subject to some future reward. To be clear, Nietzsche, who has sometimes been very wrongly accused of being an anti-Semite, did not resent the Jewish people in the slightest for this and even admired them for it, as it was necessary for their survival as a people. And, as already discussed, Nietzsche saw survival as trumping rationality. And I've got a citation here regarding Nietzsche's feelings for the Jewish people, and one has a great many options to choose from when choosing such a selection, because he wrote on that subject quite a bit. Uh, but here's one I feel is particularly relevant, which comes from the Antichrist. 
The Jews are the strangest people in the world because, confronted with the question whether to be or not to be, they chose with a perfect uncanny deliberateness to be at any price. Psychologically considered, the Jewish people are a people endowed with the toughest vital energy, who, placed in impossible circumstances, voluntarily and out of the most profound prudence of self-preservation, take sides with all the instincts of decadence, not as mastered by them, but because they divined a power in these instincts with which one could prevail against the world. The Antichrist, section 24. To further emphasize this point, because Nietzsche is a controversial figure, and I want to be clear that both he and I are opposed to anti-Semitism in every imaginable form, I'll note that Nietzsche saw the Old Testament as being on par with, or even exceeding, the Greek tragedies, which for him were the absolute highest art of humanity. I've got a citation on this one, too, uh, from Beyond Good and Evil, section 52. In the Jewish Old Testament, the book of divine justice, there are human beings, things, and speeches in so grand a style that Greek and Indian literature have nothing to compare with it, and also in Kaufman's introduction to the Antichrist, the Old Testament was one of his great loves. The dignity of death, quoting Nietzsche here, the dignity of death and a kind of consecration of passion have perhaps never been represented more beautifully than by certain Jews of the Old Testament. To these, even the Greek could have gone to school, he writes in a late note. This means that Nietzsche understood that there was a fragile balance between the Apollinean and the Dionysian in the Old Testament of the Bible, and this seems entirely sensible. God established a divine law, as in Leviticus, but also acted capriciously, sometimes almost even drunkenly, as in Job. What Nietzsche saw as being really beyond the pale was the adoption of what he called the slave morality by the ruling aristocracy of ancient Rome, who did not in any way need that philosophy to affect their survival, thus turning something that the Jews had used to survive and affirm life into something that negated life, and that, for Nietzsche, is Christianity. Nietzsche did not blame Jesus for this moral reversal so much as he did Paul, which is something that he and I have in common. More citations. On the heels of the glad tidings come the very worst, those of Paul. In Paul was embodied the opposite type to that of the bringer of glad tidings, the genius in hatred, the vision of hatred, in the inexorable logic of hatred. How much this disangelus sacrificed to hatred. Above all, the Redeemer. He nailed him to his own cross. The life, the example, the doctrine, the death, the meaning, and the right of the entire evangel. Nothing remained once this hate-inspired counterfeiter realized what alone he could use. Not the reality, not the historical truth. He invented his own history of earliest Christianity. That's from the Antichrist section 42. And thus became the new opposition, Nietzsche's Dionysian affirmation of life and the nihilism that Nietzsche saw in Christianity. This became so central to Nietzsche's ethos that he included it in Attempt at a Self-Criticism by way of rectifying the profound, hostile silence about Christianity, that's from Eke Homo, uh, in The Birth of Tragedy. Quoting here from that section of Attempt at a Self-Criticism, In truth, nothing could be more opposed to the purely aesthetic interpretation and justification of the world which are taught in The Birth of Tragedy than the Christian teaching, which is and wants to be only moral, and which relegates art, every art, to the realm of lies. With its absolute standards, beginning with the truthfulness of God, it negates, judges, and damns art. Behind this mode of thought and valuation, which must be hostile to art if it is at all genuine, 
I have never failed to sense a hostility to life, a furious, vengeful antipathy to life itself, for all of life is based on semblance, art, deception, points of view, and the necessity of perspectives and error. Christianity was from the beginning, essentially and fundamentally, life's nausea and disgust with life, merely concealed behind, masked by, dressed up as, faith in another or better life. Hatred of the world, condemnations of the passions, fear of beauty and sensuality, a beyond invented the better to slander this life, at bottom a craving for the nothing, for the end, for respite, for the Sabbath of Sabbaths. All this always struck me, no less than the unconditional will of Christianity to recognize only moral values as the most dangerous and uncanny form of all possible forms of a will to decline. At the very least, a sign of abysmal sickness, weariness, discouragement, exhaustion, and the impoverishment of life. And that was section five of uh, Attempt at Self-Criticism. The Dionysian ideal that Nietzsche constructed in response to this appears throughout his work, and I would say is the essence of Nietzsche's writing. Among its clearest and most direct formulations is the one found in Eke Homo's discussion of the birth of tragedy, um, in section two of that discussion. A formula for the highest affirmation, born of fullness, of overfulness, a yes-saying without reservation, even to suffering, even to guilt, even to everything that is questionable and strange in existence, this ultimate, most joyous, most wantonly extravagant yes to life represents not only the highest insight but also the deepest, that which is most strictly confirmed and borne out by truth and science. Nietzsche addressed his opposition to Christianity in depth in the scathing Antichrist, also from 1888. The Antichrist, whose title might also be translated as The Antichristian, was originally intended to be the first book of a four-book series which Nietzsche would call The Revaluation of All Values, but only the preface to the series and The Antichrist were ever completed. It's a fantastic read, especially for Satanists, atheists, and anyone at all critical of Christianity, and of course, for those Christians who would like to test their ideas against their strongest possible counter-arguments, and was likely the most aggressive critique of Christianity that had been written up to that point in history. The Antichrist covers several topics relevant to Christianity, including the nature of God, the history of religion, comparison to other religions, Buddhism and Islam in particular, towards both of which Nietzsche is much more favorable, it's difficult to even know what to cite to best make my point, so I'll select a favorite passage from section 16. What would be the point of a god who knew nothing of wrath, revenge, envy, scorn, cunning, and violence, who had perhaps never experienced the delightful ardors of victory and annihilation? No one would understand such a god. Why have him then? It's interesting to note that the Christian theologian Paul Tillich was influenced by Nietzsche in in the editor's introduction to the excellent collection The Basic Writings of Nietzsche, Peter Gay states that Paul Tillich has frequently paid tribute to Nietzsche's influence on his own thought, actually hailing Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud as the greatest modern Protestants. One unfamiliar with Tillich, the simultaneous Protestant theologian and fan of the explicitly anti-Christian Nietzsche, might write him off as being fundamentally inconsistent, but Tillich has many of the same bones to pick about religion as Nietzsche does. Both Tillich and I clearly disagree with Nietzsche in our seeing Christianity as being a potentially viable religion for the intellectually honest, but the aptness of Nietzsche's criticisms is undeniable. And at the core of these criticisms is Christian religious nihilism, the negation of this life and this world for some pending life and pending world. 
Nietzsche wrote on this extensively, but I'll return here to the Antichrist from section 18. God as the declaration of war against life, against nature, against the will to live. God, the formula for every slander against this world, for every lie about the beyond. God, the deification of nothingness, the will to nothingness pronounced holy. For me, the Dionysian is the core of Satanism, the deepest affirmation of life and the simultaneous rejection of the nihilistic Christian will to negate life. The Dionysian is the will to love and to love life fearlessly, to allow oneself to be maddened by one's passion and to revel in the whole rabid mess of the world. And I'll offer the last words on the matter of the Dionysian to Herr Nietzsche, from The Gay Science, section 324. In Media Vita. No, life has not disappointed me. On the contrary, I find it truer, more desirable, and mysterious every year. Ever since the day when the great liberator came to me, the idea that life could be an experiment of the seeker for knowledge, and not a duty, not a calamity, not a trickery. And knowledge itself, let it be something else for others. For example, a bed to rest on, or the way to such a bed, or a diversion, or a form of leisure. For me, it is a world of dangers and victories in which heroic feelings, too, find places to dance and play. Life as a means to knowledge. With this principle in one's heart, one can live not only boldly, but even gaily, and laugh gaily, too. And who knows how to laugh anyway and live well if he does not know a good deal about war and victory. I've made it a point in my writings and on this show that I'm not anti-religion and I'm not even anti-Christian, and although I've taken Nietzsche's criticisms of religion very much to heart and constructed my own religion with his criticisms in mind, that's a place where Nietzsche and I diverge. I definitely agree that Christianity should place less emphasis, or no emphasis, on Paul, who seemed as though he really didn't know or care much about Jesus beyond his being the Son of God and having been crucified. And I think that the realist interpretation of Jesus' ministry is simply not viable given how little we know about the actual historical Jesus. That said, when I read the works of, for example, Paul Tillich, who explicitly believed not in the historical Jesus, but Jesus as he is believed to be the Christ, I feel a great deal of kinship. And I think that that's because Paul Tillich is interpreting the Bible for himself and constructing a Christianity for himself. And that gets at what this whole Satanist Reads the Bible project is about. I'm definitely not out to convert people to Satanism, and I hope that my audience is comprised of people from as many different religious backgrounds as possible. What I want is for people to know more about what's really in the world's sacred texts, and if they're religious, to deconstruct and reconstruct their own beliefs, not according to doctrine, but according to their own analysis and interpretation. And there are some institutions of religion that are definitely opposed to this. Why do you think that the Mass was read in Latin until 1965? There are good reasons for using Latin as a language of record for religious matters. Unlike most living languages, Latin has a very stable grammar, vocabulary, and pronunciation. But if you're orating to the public, wouldn't you want to use a language that they would understand? Well, not if you want to make sure that what they understand is restricted to what you tell them. Up next could be a couple things at this point. There's a kind of half-started piece on cosmological arguments for the existence, existence of God, and I still haven't given up on pathological altruism, although it's on life support at this point. And assuming I've got the schedule straight in my head, the one that will be going up along with that will be 
uh, on the mystical experience of the sacred, which I think is the first essay I wrote where I actually knew what I was doing a little bit. It's a longer one, and it also includes some reflections on my personal experiences, so I think that you'll really enjoy that. Uh, poetry this week is not going to happen because I've been working on a poem in Finnish, uh, and I want to make sure that I've got it correct because this is my, it's not my first language. Obviously Finnish is not my first language. Um, but I like it a lot. It's not, it's not even super long, but you know, if I'm going to read something in a foreign language, uh, just in case there are any, um, Finns listening and, and, uh, therve to those who are, um, I want to make sure I get it right and don't sound like an idiot. So we'll skip that for this week, but, uh, that should be up soon. Thank you so much for joining me today and for being part of my audience. Always thought that was.